0: fascinating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. A very blessed Good Friday to you. I'm so happy to be spending part of this very sacred time with you here on Relevant Radio. one 914 9149 is the number to call. one 914 9149. You can also email us if you'd like to get a comment across that way. The address is kale, C A L E, at relevantradio.com. And we also have a couple of uh, Twitter accounts that you're going to want to be aware of. One is my personal. My Twitter handle is at Kale Clark, C A L E, Clark with an E. And we have a show account as well, at Kale Clark Show. So you can also get us a message on Twitter if you are so inclined. And This is the one day in the church's year where where we we actually have a service, not a mass. And tomorrow, of course, Holy Saturday is the only day in the church's liturgical year where there is no liturgical action whatsoever. And we wait for our Lord to arise and celebrate that with the Easter vigil, of course, uh, in the evening after Holy Saturday. Uh, When we're looking back on things post-resurrection, obviously, and that, that helps us a lot, putting ourselves in the shoes of those who were there, the sandals of Our Lady, uh, John, who was there at the foot of the cross, the early disciples panicking, fleeing, uh, they did not know how it was going to turn out. They should have known. They should have listened to the words of our Lord, to be sure. But we are looking back on it, and so this should actually give us a lot of hope this day. Yes, it's a solemn day, but it's also a day that we, we do say is very good. It is good for us, too, because today is the day when christ paid the price for our sins on the cross we're going to talk about that today and obviously father rocky later on tonight after this program he's going to be of course concluding his lenten mission close to jesus to the last and obviously it's going to be more of a spiritual take on things so i thought i'd switch things up a little bit and talk about uh how we can defend these great truths to other people and, and also help us to understand the reality of these events I'm talking about getting the death of Jesus right and getting the burial of Jesus right. That's what we're going to talk about today on the Kyle Clark Show. one 914 9149 is the number to call if you have a question. I want to talk, first of all, about the death of Jesus. And if you heard my special Faith Explained program called The Truth of the Tritium, I touched on this a little bit uh, during that program yesterday. It's a special hour-long look. At Holy Thursday, Good Friday. And you can also, of course, listen to it on the Relevant Radio app. It's archived there as a podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. If, you, if you're dialed into Relevant Radio podcasts, uh, you can certainly download it and stream it there too. But I want to get into this in a little bit more detail because I had a lot of ground to cover in that program. and I, I didn't get to, to go into as fine detail, but I want to say this. When it comes to historical events, and some people, believe it or not, we're going to get into this, they doubt the historical the historicity the historical fact of the crucifixion of christ we'll talk about that in just a moment but there are some criterion that you need to know that historians look at when they're when they're judging did something really happen or not so one criterion that they look at is called multiple attestation what does that mean well if the if there's a historical event that occurred if more than one historian mentions this That's better, especially when it comes to ancient events like the crucifixion of our Lord, which happened, of course, in the period we call late antiquity in the first century Roman Empire. If you can get more than one source, more than one historical writer that talks about it, especially if they're not, if they're working independently of one another, that's important. Two sources are better than one. Two heads are better than one. Uh, The more, the merrier in that sense. And it's also good if you can find some sources that are enemy sources, people that are hostile to your message, and they still proclaim the truth of what you're saying. They acknowledge that these things happen. That's a goldmine. Because if non-Christian sources, if non-Catholic sources are saying, yes, Jesus was crucified just as the church proclaims, then that's good because they're not likely to make that up. They're actually not Christians, in many cases, hostile to the message. They don't have the bias. They can't be accused of being biased towards the church. Things that are embarrassing. I talked a little bit about this on the Faith Explained program yesterday. If something is an embarrassing note, for example, Peter cutting off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. And we know from another gospel, his name is Malchus. Now, when he sliced off his ear, it's not as if he said to Malchus, "Oh, could you just hold still for a moment? Let me just uh, get this Ginsu knife out. And very... In a very fine cut we will just get rid of your ear. No, he, he was probably trying to take the guy's head off. He was probably trying to kill him, and he just missed. Thank God he missed. But And, of course, we know from Luke's gospel, Jesus actually puts his ear back on and heals him, and Luke finds that amazing. As a physician, he's like, wow, that's a great healing. And so that, this is embarrassing that Peter was acting in this way, and Jesus tells him, put your sword away. Put it back in its scabbard. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. So if something is embarrassing to... Uh, the proponents of this message, if that's in there, it's more more than likely historically true. And you got to hand it to Peter; he was a very very humble guy. We know about his faults, m- most of which because he he admitted them. Eyewitness testimony—that's another one. If you've got testimony about something that happened in history from an eyewitness, that's usually much better than third-hand source, a second-hand source, hearsay, you want eyewitness testimony. It's true in a court of law today and it's true when it comes to the events of the Bible. And obviously the last one is closer you are in time to an event when you're writing about it, the more likely it is that you're going to be accurate about it. If you're writing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact, well, what are you relying upon? Do you have any actual experience with what happened? Were you there? Were you there when they crucified our Lord? If you weren't there, if you're writing hundreds of years later, well, then maybe it's not quite as historically reliable. Doesn't mean it's not true what you're saying, but it's much more likely to be taken seriously if you're writing very close to the event. Now, what's great about this is that our New Testament documents, they pass all those criteria on with flying colors. They really do. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. I'm going to talk about the loads of historical evidences we have for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the physical resurrection of Jesus. This is not symbolic, folks. He really did rise. And as the poet John Updike wrote about in seven stanzas at Easter, if the amino acids did not re-knit, you know, the church will fall. This has to be a physical resurrection. And before we establish that, though, we need to establish the death of Jesus. There's no death. There's no resurrection, and my friend Greg Manette does a really nice job of this in his book, The Wrong Jesus, a very readable account of Jesus in history. One of the things that he mentions, and perhaps you've come across this in your own life, there are a few people out there. They're very rare in the in the world, but they do have a lot of websites, and a lot of people try to say that Jesus didn't exist baloney we'll we'll get into that in a minute even even secular historic and historians of the time will grant that jesus existed and that he was crucified but there's another group of people that doubts the crucifixion of jesus and that would be muslims muslims think that jesus did not die on the cross that god would not allow such a thing to happen what do they think happened well they think god pulled a switcheroo and that simon of cyrene god kind of switched the bodies and simon of cyrene got crucified instead of jesus and he was made to look like him or judas there's another tradition uh, that the muslims have that judas was the one who was actually crucified not jesus we could say well he probably deserved it but that's not what happened and we'll get into why this isn't a good theory later on but i'll just i'll just spare you the suspense on that really quickly the quran was written in the sixth century 600 years after the death of Christ. So when we talk about being close to the event in time, it's not close, not even remotely close. So I'm not going to take something that was written in the 7th century and say that that's, that's what I'm banking my, my life on, my, my faith on. We have historical documents from the 1st century that say otherwise, that Jesus was crucified. Jesus of Nazareth was the one who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead on the third day. I'd rather trust the first century sources as a, from a, from a historical perspective, there's no comparison, but let's talk about the death. Let's talk about how Jesus died, because of course, if he never did die by means of crucifixion, he couldn't have been raised from the dead, but in fact, he did die. And let's, let's take a look at crucifixion. Now, this is one thing that I I didn't have time, unfortunately, to get into on the truth of the tritium episode, but let me just say a few words about the practice of crucifixion in the Roman empire. Usually it would involve nailing a person to a cross, sometimes tying with ropes. And by the way, the nails, in terms of how a person was uh, nailed to the cross, sometimes, and certainly this is the case when it comes to popular art, we see Jesus' hands pierced. We see the the nail prints in Jesus' hands. And even talks about that in the Gospels talks about doubting Thomas. I want to I put my finger in the nail prints in his hands. But understand that in the first century Jewish world, the wrist would have been considered part of the hand. And there's. A, you can even look now at your own arm, and you can look at your forearm where it links up with your wrist. There is that, that gap, that hole between the bones of your forearm that actually, in all likelihood, if you're going to nail someone to the cross with iron spikes... You're going to do it through the opening in the wrist, the forearm the, where it attaches to the wrist. Why? Because if you try to nail somebody through the hand, you will not be able to hold the body weight. The The nail would, uh, and, and pardon the uh, graphic description, the nail would actually tear through the flesh of the hand. The person would fall off the cross. It can't support the weight of the body on the cross, the hand. Unless unless you are also to simultaneously Tie that person to the cross as well. tie the arms to the cross beam to the horizontal beam, and that's often what was done too by the Romans. They would sometimes not nail the person at all in the forearm or the hand. they would just simply tie the arms to the horizontal beam of the cross. But having said that, the shroud of Turin, if it is legitimately the the burial shroud of Jesus, and I believe there's a very good case for that that being so, but it's it's helpful to note that the man in the shroud seems to have been crucified, the nails, the spikes went through the forearms, not the hand, for what it's worth. Now, before somebody even got to the cross, a person would have, uh, a victim of crucifixion, would have already been the victim of the flogging prior to crucifixion. That was a common practice. Massive amounts of blood loss would happen in the case of the flogging. And a lot of people really had a problem with Mel Gibson in his movie The Passion of the Christ. And and a lot of people watch that every Good Friday because um, it's a very powerful depiction of the passion. The hardest part of the film to watch, for sure, if you haven't seen it, is, and and I'm not necessarily saying this is an endorsement of the film, it is very difficult to watch. The flogging scene where Jesus is being flogged, that is by far, uh, it's so real, it's so raw, it's so brutal. And I remember when Mel Gibson put the film out, one of the things he said about that scene was that the audience must suffer. The audience must suffer as they're watching this scene. And you do. You really do suffer. You really do enter into... And a lot of people thought that Mel Gibson really went over the edge with the flogging scene, that there's no way it could have been that bad. Well, it really was. It really could have been that bad. In fact, there are many reports... Uh, from antiquity of people dying uh, just from the flogging, the Roman flogging. They never even made it to to carrying their cross or getting crucified. And in fact, this is why Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus dies after only being on the cross for a relatively short period of time. Some crucifixion victims could hang there for days on end, literally, before they would expire. And the, the Romans were usually okay with that, especially in times of insurrection and war, because it's a great deterrent. To see these bodies on the cross, they didn't care how long you were suffering for. Now, we're going to get into why uh, they would not do that at the time of when, when Jesus was crucified. I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but this is why Jesus died so quickly. He's already suffering from a massive amount of blood loss. His body is going into what's called hypovolemic shock, not to mention the consequences of the spiritual weight that he was carrying the sins of the world, how that might manifest itself physically and draw energy out physically. The the incredible stress he was under, sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't believe that's a metaphor. There is an actual noted medical condition where the capillaries uh, in in the skin, uh, when someone is under great stress, will burst. And and, uh, this would have the effect of blood seeping into one's sweat, and it looked like you're sweating blood. I believe that that did happen in Christ's case. And so Jesus would have been in pretty rough shape before he even picked up uh, his cross to carry. And by the way, victims of crucifixion, they carried the horizontal beam of the cross, not the entire thing. In in Mel Gibson's film, Jesus is carrying the whole cross, the vertical and and horizontal beam, together as one. Well, What he was trying to do there is he was trying to evoke great pieces of art great works of art on the Passion. And and as you watch that film, certain scenes evoke great paintings. He wasn't necessarily trying to make that part super historical, although obviously he would have been aware of this. Normally the crucifixion victim carries the horizontal beam of the cross to the place of execution, where it's then linked up with the stake on the vertical side. That's already in the ground. The Romans would leave those at the scene and use them again and again. So let me talk a little bit about the flogging of Christ. Before I do that, though, just, just really quickly, you're listening to the Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, about crucifixion in general and how bad it was. Cicero, the famous writer, called it the most cruel and disgusting penalty, the worst extreme of torture. He also referred to it as the terror of the cross. Josephus, the, the uh, Jewish historian of the times, who wrote about Jesus, he called it the most pitiful of deaths. In fact, the English word excruciating literally comes from the practice of crucifixion. It comes from the Latin meaning out of the cross. That's where we get excruciating from. They had to invent a new word for how brutal and how painful and torturous it was. Now, prior to crucifixion, as I mentioned, the Romans would usually flog the victim using something known as a flagellum. You might have heard this described as also a cat of nine tails, where there is a a stick or, or a handle, and attached to that handle would be leather cords or thongs. And the Romans would implant pieces of iron, glass, bits of bone, sharp pieces of bone, so that when someone was whipped with this flagellum, uh, the act of being struck with it is one thing. The pullback was something else entirely. Pulling back would engage those sharp pieces of bone, metal, in the flesh and would literally tear it open on the backswing and again i'm not trying to upset your stomach i'm just trying to give you a sense of what jesus suffered for us and in fact there are lots of historical sources that talk about this flogging dionysius of halicarnassus talked about it livy philo josephus they all report that prior to being crucified victims were tormented, not only with these whips known as the flagellum, but sometimes also with fire and even other tortures. Lucian talks about a man who was not only flogged, but had his eyes plucked out, his tongue cut out of his mouth before he was nailed to the cross. There are reports of people whose flesh was so torn by the whips that their veins and arteries were visible to the naked eye. We read this in the Martyrdom of Polycarp, which is a second century work. So I don't think Mel Gibson went overboard at all when he presented the flogging scene in the passion of the christ as he did so crucifixion is not something that you're going to come back from there is a a report from josephus um, who was around when the romans sieged jerusalem in the year 70 a.d destroyed the city burned the temple to the ground in a towering inferno a couple of his friends actually three of josephus's friends were crucified by the romans outside the city walls and He was really angry about this. He tried to get them set free. He went to the general Titus, and he asked, begged for his friends to be removed from the cross. And Titus actually agreed to this. They were taken down, but even though they were given the finest medical care that Rome had to offer at the the time, only one man recovered, the other two died. Now, in Jesus' case, he certainly didn't get the finest of Rome's doctors helping him out here. Uh, He really did die. He really did die. And so that's why when the centurion goes to check him, he can tell that Jesus is dead. Now, how can he tell? Because when you're on the cross, what do you actually die from when you're crucified? You actually die from asphyxiation. You actually have to push yourself up on those iron spikes in order to breathe. Now, imagine how incredibly painful that would be, because especially if you're nailed through the wrist, there are, there are all these nerves uh, in that part of the wrist that would just be on fire the moment that you made a move, pushing yourself up in order to breathe. Well, he's not doing that anymore. He's just hanging there. That's how they knew that he was dead. But as they did with the other two men who were crucified alongside Jesus, the Romans would break the legs of the men if they weren't dead already. Why? Because then they can't push themselves up to breathe anymore. That's why they would break their legs, hastening the death, and they die by asphyxiation. Jesus was already dead. He was just hanging there. But even if you, just to make sure, quote unquote, the centurion ran his spear through Jesus's heart causing blood and water to come out. And by the way, that's an actual medical condition as well. There'd be a a sack of water, if you will, that would form around the heart when you're under this extreme stress. So blood and water, just as John describes in his gospel, would have come out of the side of Jesus. And of course, we know that that also symbolizes the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist, but that really happened. And so that was the coup de grace just to make double sure that Jesus was dead. So there's no question that Jesus died by crucifixion. And and secular historians also report this, who are not Christians. In some cases, they're outright hostile to the message. We're going to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show. I'll tell you about those guys after the break. Plus, we're going to talk about getting the burial of Jesus right, because some people don't even think that Jesus was buried. Not only was he buried, I'm going to tell you about how the Jews buried their dead, and it'll help us to understand what's going on. As we pray on Holy Saturday tomorrow. Be right back. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to the Kale Clark Show. It's Good Friday. We're talking about the crucifixion and death of our Lord and the burial of Jesus as well. Uh, just before we move to the burial, I just want to say a couple things about uh, the New Testament writings on as historical sources on the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Don't forget that all of the Gospels, plus even if you get rid of the Gospels, you'd still have to contend with the letters of St. Paul. The Gospels, Paul's writings, all written between about 20 and 60 years after the death and resurrection. These are first century documents that are within just a few years of the event, unlike the Quran, which is written 600 years after the events. But there's stuff in the New Testament that goes back to within months of the event. That's like an instant news flash. That's like a tweet comparing it to what was the norm at that time for writing about history. So I just wanted to mention that. But also really quickly, a number of non-Christian Writers from history talk about the death of Jesus. And this kind of kills two birds with one stone. It shows us that Jesus did exist as a historical person, number one, and that he died. So here's, here's a, a few of them just really quickly for you. Josephus, I mentioned him already. Uh, he existed from about the year AD 37 to AD 100. And he was a great Jewish historian of the times, not a Christian, but he did write about Jesus in the early church. And here's what he says. He says, when Pilate upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had him condemned to be crucified. So Josephus mentions the crucifixion of Jesus. Tacitus, a great Roman historian, one of the greats of all time, when it comes to the Roman historians, he wrote this. And he's talking about Nero, the mad emperor of Rome, who burned the city to the ground and blamed it on Christians, unleashed this massive persecution in the 60s uh, AD, first century. He says, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, and by the way, that's just a Latinized form of the name of Christ. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So there you have Pontius Pilate. And also talking about Jesus suffering the extreme penalty under the reign of the emperor Tiberius. Well, what do you think the extreme penalty was? Crucifixion. It was so bad, the Romans wouldn't even do it to their own citizens. Lucian of Samosata, who is a Greek historian of the second century, he says, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and who was crucified on that account. So Lucian here also gives us a bonus. He tells us that Christians worship Jesus. He's writing in the second century. So this isn't something that the church invented later, the deity of Christ. Even non-Christians knew that believers worship Jesus as God. Bar Serapion, who is a Roman historian who wrote in the second or third century, he said this, What advantage came to the Jews by the murder of their wise king, seeing that from that very time, their kingdom was driven from them. So he he's basically saying Jesus was killed. He calls Jesus their wise king. The Talmud, now that was written later, 2nd century to 5th century it was compiled, but it talks about the death of Jesus as well. In the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, it says, on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. And of course, that's his Jewish name, Yeshua, which means Joshua, really, and that is Jesus's name. It means God saves. And so... There's lots of historical data inside and outside the Bible about the death of Jesus. And in fact, John Dominic Crossan, I'm going to mention him in just a moment. John Dominic Crossan uh, is an ex-Catholic priest, very skeptical scholar. He says that Jesus didn't even get a proper burial, much less a resurrection. He thinks that Jesus' body was thrown in a shallow grave, covered over with a little bit of limestone, maybe a little bit of dirt. And then it was unceremoniously eaten by wild dogs even has a chapter in one of his books called The Dogs Beneath the Cross. Now, there's not a chance in the world that that happened. I'm going to get into that in just a moment when I talk about the burial of Jesus. But even John Dominic Crossan, as skeptical as he is, he wrote this about the death of Jesus, the crucifixion. He said, and I quote, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, end of quote. So any historian, anybody worth their salt, not only knows that Jesus existed, but that he was crucified and killed. So that's really important for you to know. There is no one, there is no one who has a, a legit job teaching history at any legit post-secondary institution, any legit college or university, anywhere in the world who's going to tell you that Jesus didn't exist. This is People who say he didn't exist, they're, they're absolute crackpots on the lunatic fringe. In fact, uh, there's a professor named uh, Stephen McQuarrie, He said a few years ago on Facebook, he said, if you can find me any legit history professor with a PhD who is teaching, you know, on faculty at a university who says that Jesus doesn't exist, I will eat my Bible right here on Facebook. Well, nobody's taken him up on that because no legit accredited person says things like that. Even people that don't believe in Jesus acknowledge his existence and his crucifixion. So I think we've established that pretty well. But let's talk about the burial of Jesus because again John Dominic Crossan doubts that this actually happened he, he thinks Jesus was crucified he was killed but that his body was just left there on the cross for a while and then unceremoniously thrown to wild animals now the big problem with his theory is that now the Romans did of course do that they really did do that at certain times but not when Jesus was killed during times of insurrection when the Jews would revolt against Roman rule What would they do? They would crucify people by the hundreds, even thousands. When the Jews rose up against the Romans in the great uh, war with Rome from 66 to 70 AD, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, thousands of Jews were crucified outside the city walls, including those friends of Josephus that I mentioned earlier. They didn't care what happened to them because these guys were revolting against them, and they wanted to send a message. If you mess with us, this is going to happen to you. They would leave the bodies on the cross. It's a great deterrent. You see these rotting corpses, birds of carrion are coming in. Ancient writers would talk about that. They would say that crucifixion victims were grim pickings for dogs and birds of carrion. And it's just a gruesome scene. In fact, when Jesus was a young boy, there was a rebellion against Rome not too far from where he grew up in Nazareth. And he may may have even seen this happen. The, the Romans crucified people all along the main road, like, te- like telephone poles. So everybody walking by would see the deterrent. Do not mess with us. That, that's the message there. Now, when Jesus was crucified, there was peace. There was peace. And during peacetime, the Romans always respected the religious sensitivities of the people that they were ruling over, including the Jews. When there was peacetime, they let them um, bury their dead properly. A g- great example, this is when John the Baptist was murdered. Herod Antipas allows the friends of John the Baptist to take the body and, and give it a proper burial. And no doubt ha- this happened in the case of Jesus as well. First of all, it's the Passover, there are, by some estimates, millions of people in Jerusalem at that time. The population had swelled to many, many times its normal size because everyone is pouring into the city for the great festival. And so, Pontius Pilate does not want a riot on his hands. He had gotten in trouble already with his overlords for putting down rebellions in a very heavy-handed way. Jesus talks about this in Luke's Gospel. Those whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, there's some sort of an incident and Pilate dealt with it in a very brutal way. Well... News of these things got back to Rome, and he was on watch, and he did not want any incidents to happen uh, during the feast. And you you can bet there's no way, because even the enemies of Jesus, if they were Jewish, they would have been aghast if Jesus was left on the cross, along with those other guys, during the Passover feast. If they weren't buried by sundown, according to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, where it says that the land will be defiled... If you do not bury crucifixion victims, there's no question that they were buried prior to sundown or else God would not have accepted the Passover sacrifice of the Jews that year. There would have been a riot. Even the enemies of Jesus would have been incensed uh, if the Romans didn't didn't allow him to be buried. So there isn't a chance in the world uh, that that happened in Jesus' case. So how did the Jews bury their dead? It's an interesting question that we should probably spend a couple of minutes talking about. What did they do? Well, burial of, of someone who passed away would take place on the day that they died, or if they died during the middle of the night, or at the end of the day after sundown, the burial would happen the very next day. But in other words, as soon as possible. And this actually lends a lot of poignancy to some scenes in the gospel for example when jesus encounters the widow at the town of nain the funeral procession is happening a man who had died was being carried out on a on a, on a beer on a, on a he was being carried out on a pallet if you will his mother's only son she has nobody to take care of her he was going to take care of her in her old age she was a widow There was a huge crowd with her from the town, lots of mourners. This is in Luke chapter 7, by the way. So when Jesus sees her, this guy has just died. Her son has just died that day. And so they're preparing for the burial. And she is at her lowest point in her life when she sees Jesus. And, of course, he raises her son from the dead. Stupendous. What about the synagogue leader, Jairus? Jesus, come and heal my daughter. She's sick. She's dying. My young girl... Well, by the time Jesus gets to his house, the flute players are there. The crowd is making a commotion. There are professional mourners and wailers there. She has already died. She's already dead. But Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Just trust in me. And so, of course, uh, Jesus raises her as well. So we see what happens after someone dies. We we, we get a glimpse of this in, in other New Testament documents. For example, Lazarus, we talked about him the other day, how he was bound and wrapped with cloths. You can read about that in John chapter 11. Even the body of Jesus is wrapped in a clean linen shroud. John 19.40. It's also mentioned in Matthew 27.59, Luke 23.53. Remember Ananias? Remember the guy who lied to the apostles, lied to the Holy Spirit, and was struck dead? Well, he was wrapped and buried as well in Acts chapter 5 a young woman named Dorcas who became ill and died. Peter raises her from the dead. But before that, they wash her body and they lay her in a room. Now, another thing that the Jews would do is they would perfume the body. And we see this in Jesus' case as well, the spices that are mentioned. He was, The body was anointed with spices. There's a reason why they would perfume the corpse. And the reason is simply this, because for the next seven days, the day of burial was day number one, In a seven-day mourning period. And Josephus talks about this. Uh, Herod the Great, when he passed away in about the year 4 BC, it talks about Herod Archelaus, the oldest son of King Herod, who mourned for seven days. He mourned for his father for seven days. And then after that, he created an end to the mourning. He gave a feast for the crowd, and he went to the temple. By the way, this this idea of the seven-day mourning period comes to us from the book of Genesis. And we're going through Genesis right now in the Faith Explained program, our sister program on Relevant Radio. Joseph, when his father, uh, Jacob, who's also known as Israel, when Jacob dies, Joseph mourns for seven days. It's mentioned in Genesis chapter 50 and in a couple other places in the Old Testament as well. So that's why when the women come to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning, that's what they're going to do. And they're, they're saying, who's going to roll the stone away? Well, the reason why they want that stone rolled away is because they're going to enter into the tomb and mourn and offer prayers, and they, they would do this. And I'm going to describe what these first-century tombs look like. I, I actually was able to explore a lot of them during my, my education. I spent some time in Israel working on archaeological digs, and I explored a lot of first-century tombs with my professor, Dr. Craig Evans, uh, my friend Greg Manette, fellow student, Uh, We dived into a lot of first-century tombs, and one of them was pretty ghastly. It's like real Indiana Jones-type stuff. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But that's why the women are saying, who's going to roll the stone away? Because when you go into the tomb, there would be a a sort of a recessed area. It would be like a square in the middle of the room, and it would be dug down low so that you could stand up without hitting your head on the top of the tomb. (laughs) And you could offer your prayers there and you would need to have the body perfume because after a couple of days, the smell is gonna be pretty bad. That's why when Lazarus dies, and Jesus waits four days to show up, and he says, Open up the tomb, they're like, I don't know if this is a good idea, Jesus. He smells bad. You know, they they literally said that because after four days, all hope is lost. Not only is decomposition setting in, by the way, the Jews had a tradition that for Three days, the spirit or soul of that person would hover over the body, hoping for a resuscitation of some sort. And on the fourth day, the soul leaves. The soul is gone. And not only that, at this point, the decomposition sets into the point where you can no longer recognize the face of the beloved dead. So, this is, this is why, another reason, by the, by the way, when the women discover Jesus' tomb is empty and they, they don't know yet that he's been resurrected. They are really distraught and they can imagine, oh, we're going to have to tell Mary about this because they're going to have no way to identify the body. Even if they find the body later, you're not going to be able to, to see the face. You, you won't be able to know it's him. That's one of the reasons why they're so sad. But of course, Jesus is alive and they discover and encounter him uh, just after that. So it's important to know. Anyway, so this seven day mourning period would take place within the tomb itself or maybe maybe outside the entrance, depending on how big it is. Now, one year after the death of the loved one, you would gather up their bones, and you would place them in what's called an ossuary or a bone box. And there are so many examples of this all over Jerusalem. But I've got to stop it right here just for a moment. I have to take a quick break, but hang with me. I'll be right back. It's Good Friday. It's the Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to the program. It's the Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. If you've been to the Holy Land, if you've been to the Mount of Olives, there are so many limestone tombs that you see. It blinds you. The sun reflects off the limestone, the white limestone. It's literally blinding. There was so much limestone in the area because of Herod's building projects. Herod the Great building the temple. And it took a long time to build it, 46 years by the time Jesus uh, is there for Holy Week. And that's why in John chapter 2 when Jesus says, tear down this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days, they think he's talking about the temple Herod built. They say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How on on earth are you going to raise it in three days? And of course, John explains, he's talking about the temple of his body. He's talking about the resurrection. But there was a lot of leftover limestone from these building projects around the temple. And people would use the limestone to make these bone boxes, these ossuaries. So one year after the death, you would come back, collect the bones, and limestone tombs, by the way, these tombs carved out of the limestone, limestone really breaks down biological material relatively quickly. You would take the bones, put them in an ossuary for what's called secondary burial. Secondary burial. And so this this sheds light on a, on a really important part of the gospel that confuses a lot of people. There are these would-be followers of Jesus. Uh, one place is in Luke chapter 9. You can read about this. It says... As Jesus and his disciples were proceeding on their journey, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus answered him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But he answered him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to my family at home. Jesus answered him, no one who sets a hand to the plow and looks to what was left behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, let me talk about this guy who's, he says, oh, let me go bury my father first. So a lot of people think Jesus is being cruel. This man's father is dying. He's sick. He's on his deathbed. Why is Jesus saying, no, no, you got to follow me now. How cruel? Why doesn't he just let this guy... Say farewell to his father. Well, Jesus isn't being cruel. His father is already dead. What this man is talking about is the secondary burial. It's gathering up the bones on the year anniversary of the death, putting them in an ossuary, a bone box. And then that box would be put in a niche in the family crypt, the family tomb. And that would be the final resting place of the individual. That's what he's talking about. And so this guy's already dead. That's why Jesus says, listen, this, this is important, but it's not as important as following me right now. So let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the bones of the physically dead. You follow me and preach the kingdom. So that's what that's all about. Sheds a little light on that. And by the way, the James Ossuary, you probably would have heard of that. This Ossuary belonging to James, the Bishop of Jerusalem, perhaps the, the relative of Jesus um, that was created quite a stir uh, Oh, almost 20 years ago now. And it was on display all over the world. Uh, including at the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, where I live in Toronto. I've, I've seen this thing. That's an example of an ossuary or a bone box. So that's what would happen. And it was, again, a sacred duty to bury the dead. Uh, again, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, when someone is convicted of a crime punishable by death and executed, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse must not remain all night upon the tree. You shall bury him that same day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you for possession. So, even a criminal, even somebody who was crucified as a common criminal, as Jesus was, would have had to have been given a proper burial. Not an honorable burial, mind you, but a proper burial. And this is exactly what happened with Jesus. It had to have happened before the Passover feast. Now, one one amazing discovery that was made that, that, that shed some light on this is that in the year 1968, in a neighborhood uh, outside of Jerusalem, in an ancient tomb, the bones of someone who had been crucified under Pontius Pilate, not Jesus, obviously, someone else who had been crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate in the first century at the time of Jesus. It probably happened about the year... 27 AD or so his bones were discovered and this was an incredibly rare find you almost never find uh, the bones of someone who we know was crucified why well because the Romans they didn't exactly care about sanitation when it came to this stuff they would reuse the nails the iron spikes and use them on the next person you would not be buried with the nails of crucifixion but this man was and his name was Yehohanan or John and in fact his ossuary you can actually um, see a replica of, of, of his, I'll tell you what they found in a second, but his bone box is at the Israel Museum in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, and it's right next to the ossuary of Caiaphas, the high priest who condemned Jesus to death. Now, his bone box is beautiful. It's very ornate. It's carved, as you can imagine. He was one of the elite of society. And it's also right next to the Pontius Pilate stone, where they literally found a stone with, from the first century that talked about Pontius Pilate. And that he was the prefect of Judea. So, there, some people even doubted that Pontius Pilate really existed, if you can believe that. Well, here he was, carved in stone. We know that he was a real figure. But let me talk about this man who was crucified. His name was Yehohanan or John, and they found his heel bone in his ossuary with the iron spike from crucifixion still attached an 11 and a half cm long iron spike protruding through his right heel bone, and it still had a chunk of olive wood attached to the nail from the cross. Now, this is an incredible find. Now, why was he buried with the crucifixion spike in his heel? Because when they nailed him to the cross, it fish-hooked. I don't know whether it hit a knot in the wood of the cross or whether the hard limestone, they probably, probably laid down the cross to crucify this man to it, and perhaps the spike went all the way through the wood, hit the limestone. At any rate, it fish hooked, and they couldn't extract it. Now, I have seen this thing with my... I've seen it with my own eyes. I saw it in the office of Dr. Israel Hershkovitz at Tel Aviv University when I was in Israel uh, doing some archaeological work as part of my grad studies. We went to his office. He's the bone collector of Israel. It's very macabre. You go into his office, there are all these skeletons all over the place. And he had... No, there's a, there's a replica in the, in the Israel Museum, but he had the original heel bone of Yehohanan, 2,000 years old. A man who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, just like Jesus was, and here is his heel bone with the spike in it. And, and by the way, what was amazing was, I was there with my professor, Dr. Craig, Craig Evans, and uh, Greg Minette, a fellow student. Israel Hershkovitz had this thing in a shoebox, this priceless relic in a cardboard shoebox. And he left us alone in the room with it. And he said, just don't, just don't touch it, guys. You can look at it. Just don't touch it. And then he left. I couldn't believe it. 2,000 years old. And I looked at this thing with my own eyes. It is unreal. Now, why is this important? Why is this an important find? What does this have to do with Jesus? Well, it proves that somebody who was crucified would get a proper burial. Not an honorable burial, mind you, but a proper burial burial and there were these special graves that were used for criminals where the body would be laid in the tomb then a year later you'd collect the bones the flesh is decomposed put the bones in a bone box and then you could take them back to your family tomb where everybody's kind of got their own niche for their bone box grandma's up here uncle john's over there and so that's what they would have done with the ehohanan he was buried with some some other family members so this is totally against the theory of the ex-Catholic priest, John Dominic Crossan, that Jesus never got a proper burial. Well, here's a guy who was crucified at the same time of Je- as Jesus, pretty much, who did get a proper burial. So it did happen. It did happen. And it undoubtedly happened in Jesus's case as well. There's so many things we could talk about. One really quick story here before we go. Uh, it's almost time for Father Rocky's last uh, session for his Lenten mission. But in looking at these first century tombs in Israel, we actually found one uh, that was amazing. It was called the Shroud Tomb. In the year 2000, Shimon Gibson, the famous archaeologist, found this by accident. He was showing some, uh, some I guess, a, a team of Boy Scouts. He was giving them a tour of some ancient tombs outside of Jerusalem in Akeldama, And one of the boys went into the, one of the ancient tombs and said, there's something in here. There's some stuff in here. And, and Shimon Gibson dropped down. And he said, oh my goodness, this is a first century tomb, and there's still a body in it. Now, there's, there are bones and a shroud covering the bones. These bones were never put into an ossuary. They were never collected a year after the person died. Now, this tomb had been looted by grave robbers, but they didn't touch one body. And it's an incredible thing what happened. They analyzed the bones of this man. Believe it or not, there was still a chunk of flesh attached to his skull and the shroud that was covering him. He had Hansen's disease. He had leprosy. And because his tomb was sealed for 2,000 years, the oxygen was kept in and he and decomposed, but not everything. Some of his scalp, some hair, some flesh from his head remained. He died in the first century at the time of Jesus. Also, they analyzed the flesh 2,000 years old. He had leprosy, Hansen's disease. That's why nobody ever came back in and gave him secondary burial. They never collected the bones because they thought we might get leprosy too. Or they thought it was unclean. We can't go in there and touch this dead body. But this is amazing because this proved that leprosy did exist at the time of Jesus. A lot of scholars doubted this. They said, oh, no, no, no. People didn't have leprosy back then. They didn't have Hansen's disease. That's not what Jesus was healing. They just had eczema or psoriasis. No, no, no. This proved that Hansen's disease really did exist at the time of Jesus. So the Gospels, once again, come through with flying colors from a historical point of view. So I hope that this little discussion here sheds some light on the death and burial of Jesus, something we can reflect on. It's the Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. So happy that you joined me today. Stay tuned for Father Rocky's Lenten mission, close to Jesus, to the last, and it is the last session of that mission. Don't miss it. And I wish you all and your families a very, very happy Easter. God bless you. Thank you for joining me today. Let's keep each other in our prayers and we'll see you next time. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.